0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.
1: Good morning. Well, when Omar Mateen shot dead 49 people and injured dozens more in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, reaction quickly descended into an argument as to whether his crime was motivated by religious fundamentalism against Western society in general, or very specifically by homophobia. And that's our topic this morning: Is homophobia different? Is it deeper? And will it ever go away? In studio, Jim Sheehan is professor of family therapy at the VID Specialist University in Oslo, and he's a psychotherapist. Grania Healy is chair of marriage equality. Oran Allen is Director of Mental Health at Glen, the Gay and Lesbian Equality Network. And Francis Fitzgibbon is PRO of Dublin Devils, the Gay Football Club and former producer of this programme. And we're going to start off by playing a clip from Sky News on Sunday night when Owen Jones, a Guardian columnist, walked out of an interview with Mark Longhurst, the Sky presenter, and Julia Hartley Brewer when they were discussing the framing of the Orlando shooting and the motivation behind Omar Mateen's actions.
2: At the end of the day, this was a homophobic hate crime, as well as terrorism, and people have to understand, as LGBT people watching this and elsewhere, that they look at something like this and it is one of the worst atrocities committed against LGBT people in the Western world for generations, Well, it's, it's, it's it a, has to it's be something out that's
0: carried out against human beings, isn't yeah. it? No, matter LGB- what the, no, but you know, no, they're, no, no, no. Let's, no, let's, no. let's, let's, let's just make this point thing, that you, yeah. you cannot say this is a worse attack than what happened in Paris, where, again, innocent that. people were actually... I said actually about attacked
3: LGBT so. people. What I'm saying is, this
2: has to be called out for what it is. It was an intentional attack mm on LGBT people. This well, person on, on the freedom of, of all people to try and enjoy themselves ex- as as was. No, I'm sorry, was. can we just explain, you don't understand this because you're not gay, okay? So just Whether listen. I'm gay or not has no... No, it does. It, can do, you just it l- has just no... Listen. Okay, this is a, clearly, it's a hate crime. This is an act of terrorism. All accepted. It was an attack on gay people. Absolutely. It's horrific.
0: Mateen's father said his son, a US citizen of Afghan descent, may have targeted the gay community may have. after becoming Indeed. angry when Why he saw Why are you two saying two this?
4: After, no, after, after seeing two men kissing in Miami some months ago, you may have been angered by many other things I'm sorry, then. I just you find know.
2: this the most astonishing thing I've ever been involved
3: on in television. I'm, I've I'm, had enough of this. Let me go. No. genuinely. Way.
1: And that was Owen Jones taking exception to Sky News presenter Mark Longhurst and commentator Julia Hartley-Brewer about uh, their attempt, as he saw, to deflect from the fact that the attack in Orlando was a homophobic act. Um, or on Alan, um, I think what might have got up people's back about Owen Jones was that somehow he was trying to take personal ownership of an attack that had happened to other people Um, do you think he had a point were the Sky News presenter and the other commentator trying to deny in some way that there was a homophobic element to the attack
2: well I suppose just to start by saying you know innocent people were murdered it was a horrific tragedy with a terrible loss of life And it was a terrorist attack. And the exact motive is yet to be determined. And we've seen in recent days how the possible motive has become more complicated, more nuanced. So I I think, given the timing of the interview, clearly Owen, like all members of the LGBT community and the rest of society, was still very upset, shocked and horrified at what had happened. But um, look, I'm not going to say whether he should or shouldn't have walked off. At the time, I felt my reaction to seeing the video on social media was I'm surprised he didn't walk off sooner. Mm. I would have found it hard to sit there because I did see that it felt like he was being silenced in one way. But actually, when you listen back in, you know, calm reflection... We can see that Julia clearly was saying, you know, we're not denying he's not homophobic, and you know it was a homophobic attack. But really, was that the 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 nub of why Ohm walked off is because Ohm was insisting that it must be labelled a homophobic hate crime, and Mark Longhurst was saying, well, it's more an issue of it was an attack carried out against human beings mm. and that what happened in Orlando is not worse because it happened to gay people than what happened in uh, Paris against Parisians in general be they gay or straight and I actually think that uh, I don't think Owen was saying it was worse uh, but I think they were both right it was a homophobic hate crime and it was carried out against all human beings it's attack on all of us
1: Francis Fitzgibbon on the night when you first heard the news did you think another terrorist attack or did you feel we are being targeted.
3: The coverage is mixed. So I suppose, you know, the the, the narrative out there straight away was terrorist attack. And to, to be perfectly honest, my take on the Owen Jones thing is I think it was a bit childish. I think he, he walked out uh, when he shouldn't have. He should have stayed. He should have debated. Um, I really don't get his point in terms of, they, they didn't deny that it was a homophobic attack. And I think that clearly what's come out in the last couple of days shows that perhaps um, the killings in Orlando were... were were more to do with the issues around the killer's sexuality than anything else. And perhaps, you know, what he was killing was what he hated in himself rather than, than terrorism. Uh, uh, and, you know, that I, I doubt if, if ISIS were any kind of factor in it. And I think that, 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 that possibly was a convenient excuse for, for him afterwards. And maybe that he was killing what he hated in himself. But, you know, that's a very, very complex issue. And it doesn't fit into 140 words in a character in a tweet. And when the media are doing something like that, it fits neatly in when they can say ISIS gunman kills 50 or 49 people in in massacre. Whereas if they really had to, um, you know, explore the issue, they would have had to say, well, this is a very, very complex issue about sexuality, about a a man who struggled with himself, a man who struggled with a community and a background. And we we heard his father's comments that didn't facilitate um, the way of lifestyle he might have yearned after, he might have wanted and, and that's coming out there, that maybe that is what he wanted. And I think the whole gun culture in the States and the history of mass shooting, that almost made the unthinkable thinkable. And that almost, it, I often say it's like, um, I went to Germany with a group a couple of years ago. And what we found extraordinary was what people stop at red lights for when the, when the, the little red man is red. <clears throat> we don't do that in Ireland. And as a group, we started walking across when the road was perfectly clear. There, there mightn't be a car coming for miles. And then the Germans would follow us. And my point is that we allowed them, we facilitated them, we made the unthinkable suddenly thinkable. And that what this, this culture of mass shootings, and it's tied in with uh, the availability of guns and all that, and that's a wider issue, it makes that whole um, area an option for people like this, people who, who, who and I, uh, his name escapes me. Ma- Omar Mateen. Um Omar Mateen, who probably hated himself, was wrapped in a culture of shame, Um, was probably wrapped in a culture of of self-hater. We know that he had visited the club uh, on many occasions beforehand and and we know that he was not accepted in that club. So there he had, um, you know, his tribe behind him was his faith, the Muslim family, a father who had made previously derogatory comments about homosexuality and God's role in dealing with homosexuals and all of that. And the tribe in front of him, who he also felt part of, but was rejected by both in a sense, uh, and that is, is a very powerful uh, motivator in making him a very, very disturbed individual.
1: And, and Gráinne Healy, what's clear is he was wrapped in a culture of homophobia so that when he did uh, feel these feelings of homosexuality arise in them, he hated them because perhaps that's what he had been taught. Um, and I'm just wondering about homophobia. You know, why do you think it is so deeply ingrained that people, when they do start to feel that they might be homosexual, that self-hate can be an option because hate is all around them.
4: Mm. Um, I I don't think that that is generally true, actually. In my own experience um, of those who are coming to understand their own sexual identity or orientation, it doesn't always lead to those kinds of feelings, thankfully. But I think what we do have is the personal... Uh, understanding. And again, you know, these are surmised analyses that this guy, others are saying he was just in scoping out this gay club and that's why he was there so often. Um, We do know about his faith-based background and certainly there's the the personal stuff but I, I think I'm more interested in having conversations this morning about what is the cultural context, the societal context within which individuals, certain groups of individuals are othered And by othered, I mean that, you know, whether it's our faith based group or our our, our cultural context that we say that there are certain groups of people who are lesser. They're not quite fully human. And in thinking that about any group, it gives permission to people who may be unhinged or who may have their own issues to go after them. So I guess we're looking at something that happened in Orlando. And I think you're absolutely right. The gun possibility there makes this a crime that is possible. And in fact, it's a wonder we have got more of it. Um, but I think when you live in a country and Ireland has had a long journey on this issue where, you know, 50 years ago to be LGBT in Ireland was something that, People emigrated if they thought they were. Their families were ashamed of them. Um, You know, they would be shamed and othered by society, by the media, by their church. So in some ways, we've moved a big deal of a distance over those years to see our referendum win last year and 62% of the people coming out and voting. And in voting, what they were saying to Irish LGBT people was... It's okay to be Irish and gay. You belong. You're part of our family. You're our kids, you're our parents. And I guess that cultural shift is about a whole set of values that have evolved where we're now moving, hopefully, in Irish society, where we're looking at much more inclusive approaches to many subgroups. In this case, we're talking about lesbian and gay people, but I think there is a huge issue still around, if you look at Ireland, The traveller community are still othered in that way. So it's about looking at the cultural context within which we give permission to people, to other.
1: And Jim Sheehan, there are two themes that come up constantly on this show, irrespective of what the ostensible topic is. One is class, you know, and how that dictates so much. And the other is this issue of identity. So even in the news today, you have Brexit, ISIS, Donald Trump. Last week's show was on sexism, you know, racism that there's this compulsion in us to identify this other. Do you see homophobia as being on that spectrum or do you think there's something different and deeper about homophobia?
0: Well, I think it it is on that spectrum, but there's something deeper there as well. And that is that in in trying to understand who we are ourselves, we're we're constantly faced with uh, the things that we say we are but also parts of our experience that we're not easily, easily able to identify at all and that we're not easily able to put language on and to name. So there's constantly that kind of otherness within the self that comes to haunt us and comes at us, Do you know. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem that we're beginning to recognise. It's not a problem. It's part of who part of who we are, Do you know. But what it does mean is that our approach to the question of identity is really changing And instead of thinking of identities of any kind as things that are relatively static, kind of made individually and relatively stable over time, we're now thinking of personal identities as something that are more flexibly made, constructed with people along the way, you know, made in the moment for and with others for specific purposes and that kind of will, I think, bring us along a path that gets us, gets us away from kind of rigid categorizations of who we are around anything. You know, we're talking here about sex, the, the idea of sexual identity, do you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I think, could I just go back and say something about the interview? Sure. I thought it was very interesting. I hadn't heard it at all. But I think it represents the, the breakdown in the interview. It represents something that we're actually really struggling with in the culture. And it's not bad to see it played out in the media in a way. You saw the interviewer here, really, you know, a representative of the interests of kind of Western democracy, wanting to put the emphasis in the debate upon the shared humanity of all of us, Mm. you know. Uh, And that's a kind of uh, a There's a purpose behind that emphasis. And the other person, uh, what was his name, Jones? Owen Jones. Owen, Owen, wanting to say, hey, you know, you're forgetting something here. This was a homophobic terrorist attack, and let's not forget that, you know. And
1: you said the presenter had a purpose. Now, you see, Owen might say that his purpose was to deny the homophobia of the incident. Yeah. What do you think the presenter's purpose was?
0: Well, I think the presenter's purpose was to actually put the emphasis on this concept of a shared humanity, you know. Do
1: you think was he right?
0: I think it's a perspective, Right. I think there's a problem with kind of taking that view because it's kind of there is a denial in that in that perspective as well, because it's sort of saying, look, we're all the same. Ultimately, we're all human beings. But the problem is we don't have a consensus with across our cultures about what a human being is, you know, And, and, and therefore you have this kind of divide and then a sort of a forgetfulness of the fact that that even though we have certain level of rights uh, for everybody across many Western cultures at the moment, historically that's relatively new. Do you know when I heard this debate, I, I said to myself, "Hey, you know, it's only since the early '80s. I'm old enough to remember murders in Ireland of people like Charles Self. Do you know people like John Roach, people like Declan Flynn in the early '80s who was killed in Fairview Park." All those kind of murders that happened kind of in isolated context. You know, nobody used a gun to kill them. They were actually stabbed to death and beaten to death. But so even though we've gone a long distance, I think it's very important that we don't disidentify too much from our homophobic attitudes and our homophobic behaviours that have led to all kinds of horrible violences.
1: So, Oran Allen, even though we've come a long way... (sighs) Do you think homophobia is still a huge problem in society today? Is it something that you face?
2: Um, hmm, How do I answer that? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) Well, honestly, I feel I have a good life in Ireland. Um, And that's based on all parts of my identity. But I still do encounter... Incidences that you some people might say are minor, been called fag or puff. Um, but also, um, I, I think that there is homophobia still in Ireland. There is.
1: And how does it manifest itself?
2: Um, w- what I was going to say is that there are degrees of homophobia. I mean, what is homophobia? Let's just be clear. It's prejudicial attitudes... prejudicial or discriminatory attitudes or behaviour against gay or lesbian people Um, because of who they are because of their sexual orientation and whether that's intended or unintended so the old idea was that homophobia is like an irrational hatred or fear that's only a very extreme end of the spectrum but there are degrees just like there are degrees of racism just like there are degrees of sexism Um, you can say something that you don't intend to offend a woman but it can be perceived as sexist Uh, so you can say or do something that is offend Offensive or hurtful or homophobic without intending it to be such. So I suppose we need to acknowledge there is a spectrum of attitudes and behaviours. Although
1: we've talked before, say, I was shocked when my children came home from school, when they were young, now I mean around six, uh, saying, uh, using this word gay. Now they were using it in two contexts. One was, oh, that's so gay, you know, as a pejorative but they were clear also that somebody had been identified as possibly being gay and Mm -hmm. he's gay and what's gay and I was and they hadn't heard it obviously at home they hadn't heard it from teachers or anything like that it was in the schoolyard
2: and I think it's not helpful if we try and understand everything in relation to lesbian, gay, bisexual transgender people under the, the theme of homophobia because it goes far beyond the topic of homophobia if we're going to have a proper conversation we need to not curtail ourselves by saying it either is there isn't homophobia. If your child comes home and asks what's gay because somebody said that kid is gay. I think that tells us something interesting about well children grow up in Ireland and they're they're left finding out that people can be gay in the in the playground because somebody mentions the word gay, whereas maybe it would be better if gay was something the kids came to a natural understanding of because it's very open in their family or their community so I, I think that's not homophobia your child coming home but certainly kids using the word gay as the put down for everything they don't like or that's not cool you know that that, uh, that pencil case is so gay that that creates a culture in schools that's not helpful for gay people but I don't think that's homophobia
1: and Francis, this arises to visibility mm. you see sure we know each other a long time you had yeah. to tell me you were gay because I didn't know you were gay because yeah. you don't look gay, you well, don't you act gay. Well, yeah, and then, <laughs> then it, it poses the question,
3: what, what does it mean <laughs> do to look gay? <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah. And, and,
3: I, and I, <laughs> yeah. I said before that I feel like I come out every time I meet somebody new because it's almost like do. they're like, oh, you're gay, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then you have to tell them all about it and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think there's a language that, that can evolve. And I always use the example of, do you remember the film Blazing Saddles? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Which is now 25 years old or something like oh. that. And that was such a, an <laughs> iconic film. But the language in that film was inherently racist. And if you look back at the film now, it would never be remade. It would never be acceptable. And I think there's a kind of an, a, an evolution in language that comes. And it's like I often... Do you remember Mary O'Rourke in a live radio interview said um, my, my my workers were working like blacks or yeah. something like that. I'm sure she meant nothing by that. But that's a language thing. And, I, and actually, I struggled last week because I was out on the Martin O'Neill and the Queers comment. And part of me was kind of thinking, oh, for God's sake, it's just a throwaway quip. But then the other part of me was saying, you know what, he needs to be checked on it because mm-hmm. such an iconic figure and such a role model for the teenager down in Kerry or Waterford who's uh, into GAA football and is gay and looks up to Martin O'Neill. And mm-hmm. that's that's something he needs to remember. Mm-hmm. So it's an evolution of language that comes, that that hasn't maybe moved as fast as it has in terms of race, but it will in sexuality terms. And I remember when I came out, first of all, uh, and my brother, of course, who's overwhelmingly supportive. um, And he found, we talked about this, that he found when he was in conversations with groups of lads that there would be these kind of almost throwaway, for want of a better word, arse to the wall comments that he kind of felt himself checking. He hadn't realized before Mm. and he hadn't. And then all of a sudden he was like, well, hang on a second here, guys. You can't say that. And that will move on once the once that uh, discussion uh, kind of evolves as well.
4: Mm. Gráinne, is it different for lesbians? In some ways, the invisibility for lesbians is far worse. I mean, people talk about, you know, 1993 was decriminalisation of homosexuality and that was between men. I mean, lesbianism wasn't even mentioned in it. So you could either celebrate that by the fact that we were under the radar and therefore we're free to do what we want. Or you could say, as a matter of visibility, actually, we didn't even figure in the picture. We didn't exist. We didn't exist. So there is a challenge and there was a challenge for us, certainly in the Marriage Equality Organisation over the decade of our campaign to portray visibly to the Irish public lesbians and gay men, particularly those who are parenting, and there were many lesbian women parenting. And when you would talk to people, they'd say, oh, I didn't know gay people had kids. So a big part of our work in building up towards the referendum was just doing that visibility...
1: But is there something about lesbians that perhaps you seem less threatening to society in yeah. general so people don't mind lesbian mothers that's uh, grand that's right. I, I think that that's true yeah. and that's again
4: culturally the fact is that in Ireland women have always raised the children anyway it's only in recent years that men have really put the shoulder to the grindstone and become full 50% equal parents so there is a culture in Ireland that women were always seen to be the ones with the kids so the fact that lesbian women were raising children I think you're right I don't think there was a scary thing about that the scary thing maybe came for people who were unused to the idea of two gay men raising children. So that visibility issue, I think, has been a challenge and it is different. I and Jim,
0: it.
1: going back to identity, I'm interested in this idea of you know, how you define yourself and say for gay people, you know, are you the teacher who happens to be gay or are you the gay teacher? Or yeah. you see it a lot in politics that maybe you've somebody like David Norris, whose entire political career is defined by his campaign for gay rights, but maybe you've other people say like the former Labour TD, Dominic Hannigan, who looked like he just wanted to be a TD, who happened to be gay. Yeah. So how do we decide... How we will define ourselves yeah. by one particular aspect of ourselves. Sure. Well,
0: the, the first thing to remember is we don't decide on our own, right? It's right. a joint activity, you know? I remember one American feminist said, you know, about uh, a lesbian, it said, it takes two people at least to make a lesbian, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, and it's about that kind of indication and confirmation. Yeah. You know, somebody sees something in you and jointly you do something to recognise that and you shape it and you give it a name in some way and give it a behaviour or whatever. I think it's the same thing in in schools and in society generally. Depends very much on the social context around you. What is it that people see? Do you know? If people have these rigid categorizations, do you know, they'll see the gay person before the teacher. You know, they say he's gay. He's a teacher. You know. Gay, gay men have been traditionally really stereotyped in very much more problematic ways than, for example, lesbian women. Uh, for, for, for example, I think there's been a sort of a hidden, uh, hidden discrimination against gay men when they became fathers. That, you know, really, you know, they've come out. But bec- the fact that they didn't come out for so long, was it because they were really hidden paedophiles? You know, there's that sense yeah. that, you know, that all of those kind of prejudicial ideas about gay men were there, do you know? And in fact, in some ways, they're still there. You know, I do a lot of work with families after separation and divorce, and and when you think about the issues that uh, people arise in, that arise when people are choosing people to look after their children, there's this kind of suspicion when you get actually a a, a man uh, being employed as a childminder. You know. Why is he doing that business? Do you know why we have to be suspicious. It's not good enough that he has the qualifications. We want to need more about him. We want to know more about him. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I
2: think Jim is picking up on something interesting there which is about masculinity and going back to what Francis was saying about language. I absolutely agree with him. In my work in Glen I do a lot of training with health professionals and um often the issue is they just want to understand what are the issues that face LGBT people? What does the research tell us about why there's higher levels of mental health difficulties and so on? But language is key. It's not that they're homophobic or biphobic or transphobic. Absolutely not. They want to provide a good service to everyone and they just need to understand the language and the concepts. But I think... The, the issue of masculinity is really really relevant here as I said earlier it's not just homophobia or not homophobia there are many many themes that are relevant to this discussion and masculinity is policed in Ireland like nothing else you're supposed to be rough, tough, buff and sporty and if you're not then you're questionable and I think that's a, that's probably another show and, and
1: actually I want to come back though to that idea of uh, visibility I have to take a quick break but when we um, come back we'll be talking about gay pride and looking gay and how people feel about that
4: Talking Point
2: on News Talk 106-108.
1: And Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about homophobia this morning and in studio Jim Sheehan is a professor of family therapy at the VID Specialist University in Oslo and he's a practitioner and psychotherapist. Grainne Healy is Chair of Marriage Equality. Oran Allen is Director of Mental Health at Glen, the Gay and Lesbian Equality Network. And Francis Fitzgibbon is PRO of Dublin Devils, the gay football club and former producer of this programme and he's my friend too. <laughs> um, uh, Frances, I want to come to you on visibility and it's something that we've talked about before. It is the issue of gay pride and that there seems to be a division between particularly gay men on those who you know want to make it very clear to society by the way they dress and behave yes I am gay and here I am and recognize me and others who just want to get on with the rest of their lives now which side do you put yourself on and is there a political purpose behind what you do or is it just you
3: it's a difficult question. It's a very complex question. I don't necessarily put myself in any particular box. Sometimes I feel like I want to be out there, you know, talking about gay issues. Some, and, and I've actually come to a point where I just got so... Every time a, a gay sports person came out, I'd have 10 different interview requests on my phone. And I just came to a point where, was, you know what, I'm not the go-to wheel him out when somebody comes <laughs> out from it, from the gay sports world person. And I just stopped, re, re, you know, responding to my phone on those days that someone some would come out. I I have had issues in the past with 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 sometimes some of the more sexualized more flamboyant nature of uh, gay pride. I think it it's quite good here in Dublin but in in other cities that I've been to it can be quite over sexualized and I've had issues with that.
1: And what are your issues with
3: it? <clears throat> the the issue is that sometimes and of course if you might have 100 floats in a gay pride parade if you have one float where you have um, you know, a group of guys in assless leather chaps. That's the picture that will be in the the, the, the front of the paper the next day.
1: Probably the Daily Mail.
3: Probably the Daily Mail. <laughs> and then you have, you know, Mary in her country kitchen down in Waterford looking at the representation of gay pride and she sees the guys in assless chaps drinking cans on the street and they think that's what gay culture is. And then when we're trying to fight the battle of family and gay life and stuff like that, that's not the representation. Now, there's issues there in terms of media. And there's issues there in terms of representation, which you can go into all day. But I think as a community, we need to be cognizant of the fact that we're putting our best face forward on gay pride. Uh, As I said, Dublin has been very good. Alcohol was banned um, at the last parade, as far as I remember, which was a good step. I think it doesn't make it some kind of boozy, overindulgent affair. It's more representation of family, that we're into sports, we're... You know.
1: Yeah, but Grania, I know that Francis has been called an internalized homophobe, you yeah. know, for expressing those views because oh, you don't want to look gay. So what's your take on yeah, that? Yeah, my
4: my my take would be that, you know, uh, on the one hand, you know, some of those floats don't represent me personally. You know, I'm a middle-aged Irish woman. Uh, you know lesbian in a relationship of 30 years long I have a grandson I like to bring him he will be coming along to, to pride with us he's three um, and there's something about it being a family day out on the other hand lots of it will go over his head I mean men dressed in certain ways he'll just think it's fun some of the cartoons he watches are outrageous so you know it goes over their heads but I think there is something about allowing pride to be a day that is a political day of expressing visibility and and pride but also about letting people get up and I mean Jim was talking about acting out I mean a big part of what happens on the day in pride is allowing people you know guys dressed up as angels you just have to laugh when you see them
1: So do you think it's about celebrating diversity yeah, I do. There are different kinds. Or should it mean more about, no, it's okay. We're just like you.
4: Well, you see, it's it's both. Of the hundred floats, I think you get that variety and it's about allowing that variety to come through. So,
1: Oran Allen, this is the thing about uh, we were talking yesterday about queer activism versus assimilators. Yeah, when you just explain to people the history? What well, can I just say? I think we yeah. need
2: to live and let live because you know, let's. You know, Francis is saying about, you know, maybe very sexualised uh, some people being very sexualised but actually, you know, some straight men are very tied to their heterosexuality and are very sexualized in their behaviour and attitudes and that's maybe right for them and other men are not that way at all but if you go to Rio and go to Carnival you will see way more male and female flesh than you'll ever see in a man wearing a pair of assless chaps in, in, in gay pride in Dublin I think we just need to again draw in on another theme Ireland has a sex negative attitude and culture well, generally. some
1: people would say modern society is
2: No, 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 but I think in general yeah. comfort... What is wrong with seeing a bit of human flesh? And as Grainne quite re- rightly said, very often that just goes over kids' heads. I'm not saying that it's, it's right or wrong. I'm just saying we shouldn't get too tied up on it because the key word here is diversity. LGBT people, the gay community, is as diverse as heterosexual people. It's human spectrum. There's lots of diversity.
1: Yeah, there's probably a whole other show on sexualisation in general because I know when my children who are boys see, you know, women, you know, in bikinis or whatever, they know what they're looking at. It doesn't go over their heads. But will you get back to that thing about the activism versus assimilation? So when we go back to the
2: roots um, of, you know, the gay rights movement, I suppose most people would have heard of the Stonewall Riots, which was kind of like a flashpoint and a turning point in the gay rights movement. But there was always debates within the LGBT community about what approach is best to take. And I suppose... In a crude way, you could divide the two approaches between, say, the assimilationist, which is about emphasising we're very like the rest of society. We're just like, we're humans. So the, if that comes first and foremost before our sexual identity or sexual orientation or gender identity. And then the other approaches was maybe the, the queer activists who are about emphasising, well, no, we're different and we shouldn't try and say that we are just like you, therefore accept us because therefore we're almost implying that there's something not right about our difference. And I think that's essentially what's playing out in this discussion that comes up every year around Pride and I'm not saying either are right or either are wrong I think there's a real value in both nobody can deny that without the riots the riotous uprising in Stonewall that what happened the following year which is where Gay Pride came from it was around the world in many cities uh, you know burgeoning gay rights activists got together and had a political protest on their streets and it was very much a political statement we are here and we want to demand our rights and equality and now it's grown into a celebration, but I think it still has that root in uh, celebration. I'm, I'm, Francis, I'm because yeah.
3: I, and often I think that we're we're really overegg the pudding in terms of what marriage equality or what marriage equality has done. And yes, it's come, it's it's brought us a really long way. But I'm based in Kerry most of my time at the moment, and on all the gay app dating apps down there, for the most part, the guys are are, are in the closet. Yeah. Uh, and they sometimes they almost they chat to me because they see me as a as a face that they would you would I've, I've spoken openly about it and I've done interviews even down in Kerry in the local papers and local media down there. And they wouldn't be in the closet if we didn't still have a problem. Mm. Y- you know, and whether that's a nuanced, you know, we've but some obviously people come a would long say,
1: way. But do they have a problem?
3: Of course. But, like, do you remember when but, Ursula but their Halligan... their problem is, re- is reflective of society's yeah. problem. Mm. You know, you made a very good point, Orin, about masculinity. Mm. And I always equate that to um, men, young men now pushing prams around. My father would have never pushed a pram around mm. because he would have seen himself as totally feminine. Maybe when my mother was with him, but now my brother goes off with the child and he my brother is as much the caregiver for his young son, my nephew, as as his uh, partner is and that's, that's, a, that's a movement but it's yeah. like we do have a very masculine culture and
2: Sarah, really, oh, Can I just make a point yeah. because there, there are a lot of young guys out there for many reasons may struggle with who they are in this world as I said earlier they get the message from a very young age they shouldn't cry they're supposed to be rough, tough, buff and sporty and that fits for some guys' identities whether they're gay or straight but actually there's probably a lot of guys out there who maybe struggle to identify as bisexual because we've had so many discussions about gay and lesbian couples uh, we you know so so it, it, especially last year with the marriage referendum and I think uh, you know the, the attitudes have shifted about gay and lesbian people but I think there is much less visibility about bisexuality and I think it can be ma- very difficult But
1: Jim yeah. I worried when I was watching the whole marriage campaign start, mm. I thought, brilliant idea to have people like Grania out who can appeal to Middle Ireland and mm. won't be threatening. And I worried when the whole Panty Bliss thing started. Mm. Not so much about um, maybe the marriage campaign, but if you're a 13-year-old boy in Ballygo go backwards and you're mm. beginning to wonder if you are gay mm. and you see Panty Bliss as the representation of mm. homosexuality, mm. does that make you more or less uncomfortable with what you think you might be.
0: Well, you see, I think it's not so much what the boy thinks, but it's what his parents think and what the community around him yeah. think of Panty Bliss. That really is important. You know, I want to just go back to this idea of identity again and say that, you know, the, the, about 10 years ago, there was a historian of sexualities, an English guy called Weeks, who said, you know, the idea of sexual identity and sexual communities are really fictions. right? They're really fictions. They're cultural constructions. But, Necessary cultural constructions. Because when we talk about gay pride, we must not forget the political aspect of this. We can't understand what's going on there, I think, outside of understanding the political backdrop to this. We're very recently out of a period of, you know, in terms of the long history that we've had, very recently out of a period of incredible discrimination, incredible intolerance. Uh, you know, the very term sexual identity, can I tell you, when I started to train as a social worker many, many years ago in 1968, that term wasn't used. We didn't have a term called sexual identity. Sexual identity only came into the culture when we realised that we gay and lesbian people who are actually living human beings in the same culture, do you know?
1: So do you think that there'll be a kind of moral progress that maybe in a generation this will all be old news and people will look back and go, God, we were mad? Or do you think with homophobia there will still be something ingrained about it.
0: Well I think it's going to take longer than a generation because we've taken a couple of thousand years to build up to this point. Do you know so I think it will take longer than a generation. And but I do think the the kind of the debate and discourse about diversity is really important. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't allow us forget the fact that there have been groups of people in our society who've been oppressed, who've been the subject of discrimination and awful violence and killing. We mustn't forget that. Yeah, and
4: I think that's a really good point, Jim. And I think the work of Jeffrey Weeks has been huge in shifting all kinds of thinking around yeah. this particular issue. But I just got back uh, last week. I was working in Bangkok with LGBT networks there. These are people who are working in Africa and in Asia. Particularly, I was struck by those in Africa who you know, they were hearing about the yes, equality story and yes, it was great. But I mean, how relevant it was to their situation is questionable. But what they did pick up on and what they shared with me and I was thinking about it coming back on the long plane journey and then I got off the plane and I hear about Orlando, that there is something about us up here in the global north and the cultural shifts and changes that have happened. And there is the complete lack of those cultural shifts in other parts of the world. And I was struck particularly by the people I met from Uganda and Nigeria who are living in countries where their governments, their legislators are legislating for these people to be put to death and imprisoned for being who they are. And the Catholic Church and other major uh, Christian and other religions in that region are supporting that. So there is a whole piece of work. Yes, individuals will always perhaps struggle to come out and to find out who they are but in some cultural contexts it is impossible and it is extremely mm-hmm. dangerous and oh. we need to be doing something about that in solidarity. OK,
1: and I have to take a quick break there but when I come back I'm going to ask Frances Fitzgibbon about Boy George.
2: Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.
1: And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about homophobia this morning. And in studio, Jim Sheehan is a psychotherapist and practitioner. Grainne Healy is Chair of Marriage Equality. Oron Allen is Director of Mental Health at Glen. And Francis Fitzgibbon is PRO of Dublin Devils, the gay football club, and former producer of this programme. Um, Frances, I was asking Jim earlier about Panty Bliss and the usefulness of her... Um, uh, status, we'll say, in the in the marriage equality campaign. Now, you wrote an article a little while ago about Boy George. Mm. Tell us the point that you were making in that and the reaction you got to it.
3: Yeah, well, I, I, the article wasn't, the article was about me, not about Boy George. <laughs> and it was on the back of um, another sports star, I think it was the basketballer who, whose name escapes me at the moment. But I just referenced in it, and they happened to use that as the headline in The Independent, that not all gay men look like Boy George. And of course, uh, I was making the point that, you know, every time that I do come into a new environment that I feel I have to come out again, I wouldn't be the traditional stereotype of what people conceive that a gay man is. And I I wrote that article. And then, of course, somebody tweeted it at Boy George, who then tweeted back to me that uh, several times that I was some kind of internal homophobe. And I had a a whole waft of hundreds of followers of Boy George, who I'm actually quite a fan of. Um, <laughs> it's too late. You yeah, not roll de- back. You know, descending on me, calling me an internal homophobe for uh, two weeks afterwards. And I was getting messages. I just had to leave Twitter for a month because of this barrage, and I, which I thought was totally unfair. I was making the point that, you know, I, I think the line he most objected to was, what do I have to do? You know, mince down the street like Boy George wearing a Lady Gaga t-shirt saying I'm gay before people actually accept me, you know, and that was the point of it. And I don't, the point was that gay people come in all shapes and sizes. Mm. And your, your question about Panty, I think Panty is a, g- a good role model, but yet then so is Donalogue Cusack. Mm. Y- you know, and that we need both of those people because some people are going to identify more with Panty and that's what they look up to as their role model. Some people will identify more with Donalogue. The trouble is, for the gay community, we don't have enough of the Donalogues and we probably have a lot of the Panties, if you know what I mean. And and for the young uh, maybe sports mad uh, gay person uh, down in in rural Ireland maybe we need more other and diverse influences which we don't have.
1: Uh, Jim, you said um, something earlier. We're talking about, you know, the young boy who's struggling with his sexuality and that maybe the parents' attitude is the real problem. And I was very struck there by last year, um, a school in South County Dublin was running a a transition year course in Uh, homophobia because uh, homophobic bullying is a big problem, I think, particularly in secondary schools. And it got cancelled. And the media (laughs) kind of initially said, oh, this is a Catholic school cancelling this very important programme. But it quickly became apparent it was the parents who had objected to this programme. Yeah, program, yeah. You one know. Yeah, <laughs> one. Was that all it took? Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, yeah. isn't that a shame? A- yeah.
0: Absolutely. But, you know, it says something about the lack of openness of dialogue at every level about these things. Like, why was it cancelled without all the other parents being brought in to have a good conversation together about what they want for their kids in the school? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, the, the more we talk about these things, the better. You know, yeah. we really need to, but we need to recognise that people belong to very specific, small, subcultural communities and that, you know, the playing field is not the same, to use that sporting matter, but playing field is not the same for everybody, you know. Mm.
1: Uh, and then, Oron, what about public displays of affection?
2: Well it's really interesting in the LGBT Ireland report that was published uh, in March this year uh, there was um, part of that study was a nationally representative study of Irish adults attitudes towards lesbian, gay, bisexual transgender people and they asked them three questions amongst many and uh, how comfortable uh, do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable seeing people kissing in public? So, the baseline for Irish adults is that 17% are uncomfortable seeing a, a man and a woman kissing in public. So, that's our baseline 17%. It rises to 30% when they see. A female couple kissing and it rises to 40% when they see two men kissing. So I was surprised that 17% of Irish adults are uncomfortable seeing a man and a woman kissing in public, but that's, that's fine. That's diversity. But there is a difference then when it comes to a gay or a lesbian couple. There's those higher levels of discomfort. I'd say a lot of that is unfamiliarity. It's relatively new for some people. And I would say for only a small number, that might be a homophobic thing. So,
1: Granny, does that mean that there's almost a political obligation on gay couples to be affectionate in public so they can say we're here this is okay get used to it A
2: gay
4: snogfest <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I think certainly it was one of the things you know when, when when the referendum happened last year and we won that I certainly felt in speaking to other people that you know um, you know Gay men and and lesbians could no longer go home at the weekend to their mothers and now their mothers would be saying, so when's the big day? Yeah, you going to settle down and get married? And that as an oppressive thing that our brothers and sisters have had for years, it's like that's that's the reality now. Uh, On a serious note, I think that, you know, the public displays of affection are a real indicator of... Um, not just society's acceptance, but also people's own projection of their sense of acceptance and how comfortable. I mean, I'm not sure that myself and my partner would be comfortable walking down O'Connell Street at 10 o'clock any night of the week mm-hmm. and holding hands. However, we might walk down on a Sunday afternoon, walk down Leary Pier holding hands and not feel threatened so there is a context and there is a, a reality but it's back but to Jim's a mixed, point a mixture of public attitudes about isn't exactly. it we have a very
0: strong view yeah. in Ireland yeah. I think generally about what should be kept private and what should yeah, be public yeah, yeah. And, and kids kids share that view too mm-hmm. they for example a lot of kids would say to me oh god mum and dad they were kissing at yes. the zoo yes. god <laughs> Jesus
4: and Jim
1: you know? before we go there's yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you about and sorry for just hopping yeah. this in towards yeah. the end of the programme you know when you see homophobia particularly violence you say by you know soccer fans or whatever it is yeah. on the street and i you often worry about latent homosexuality yeah. you know how much of that is their own self-hating yeah. how widespread yeah. do you think latent homosexuality is?
0: Yeah and and those people have an internalised homophobia I think For it's still, real? Not yeah, that <laughs> You see it's still very present in those subcultures where the people around those individuals still have very negative attitudes towards mm-hmm. homosexuality so those people don't have the freedom to say anything about what they're feeling and say what, anything about what their sexual interests are. You know, so of course there will still be... And
1: how uh, do you cure that?
0: Well, you don't cure it. You, no. the only Well, hold on a second. <laughs> the cure is a social cure. Yes. The cure is part of what we're doing now. Mm. Part yeah. of what you, mm. Sarah Carey, are mm. doing here, mm. right? Yeah. You're yeah. the therapist, you know, along with us. And it's about getting the debates out into the open, having more and more dialogue, recognising it, recognising also about how hard it is for people to shift their attitudes. Mm. Do you know mm. how yeah. hard it is? And how often it's only from hearing personal narratives and personal experiences that people can begin to move their attitudes about people they love. Now
4: Grania, you you're doing a workshop. We're doing, there's a summer school a campaigning summer school happening uh, on the 18th to the 20th of July out in Fitzpatrick's Hotel in Kalini and we have national and international NGOs coming together and this year they're going to be looking specifically at the Yes Equality campaign as a kind of a model of good practice And, and we're inviting people to come along to book in. It's on Eventbrite if they're interested in it and there's like barbecue where Panty's going to be and David Norris is doing the keynote address so there's lots of interest there but it really is about looking seriously at how you learned to do the kind of campaign we did last year and sharing the nuts and bolts of okay, that.
1: Okay, I will tweet I about that. Or on, yes.
4: I just want to say
2: thank you to the people of Ireland for voting yes last year oh, because yes. I think on the topic of homophobia and what Jim has said, the social solution and I think that's taken us a huge step forward and it's given lots of hope and encouragement for that we will be able to reach a more inclusive, diverse Irish society and especially having had such terrible things happen this week, I think it's just useful to end on a positive note that I there's do. room for lots of hope and I'd like to add
0: thanks to the people who led the campaign absolutely that was, that was absolutely brilliant <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank look, you
1: well thank you to all my guests I'm going to finish with a quote from Brendan Cox the husband of Joe Cox the Labour MP who was so sadly murdered on Thursday and he said hate doesn't have a creed, race or religion it's just poisonous it really is but look that's it for this morning big thanks to my guest Aoife Breen Produce. stay tuned for Bobby Kerr and thank you for listening